Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. This week's episode features a conversation with Nancy Scola, Senior Technology Reporter for Politico. She discussed the regulation of tech platforms, their role in the 2016 election, cybersecurity and more in a conversation with Nick O'Mealy, Director of the Shorenstein Center. My name is Nick O'Mealy. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center, and I have one of my favorite journalists in the entire world here with us today, Nancy Scola, who I have been a longtime fan of her work. Nancy Scola is a senior technology reporter for Politico. For more than a decade, she has covered the intersections of technology, politics, and public policy for a variety of outlets. She served as a tech policy reporter for the Washington Post a tech and politics correspondent for The Atlantic, and a contributing writer at Next City. As a freelance writer, she's also contributed to the Washingtonian Reuters and many other publications. I am absolutely delighted to have her here today to join us. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you, Nico. Thank you very much. So uh, I'm going to open with a question about regulation and the digital platforms. Okay. You wrote one of the best, uh, maybe it was three or four years ago, I wrote one of the best pieces on Uber, a fairly long-form piece for Next City, and really anticipated some of the regulatory challenges Uber is facing right now, especially in Europe and London and Germany, among others. Um, what, what, what do you make of the current environment in Washington, D.C., towards the digital platforms it's not good <laughs> it's not good for them they uh they've enjoyed a period of very light regulation as as you all well know for many years uh and there's been sort of a confluence of events now that um has created an environment in which there is a lot of momentum towards regulating and washington as you probably all want know too is that when people get an idea about regulating something others around them get the idea about regulating the same thing so a couple members in congress start talking about hey maybe we need more rules for these platforms other members see the those members going on television getting attention for it and they want to start paying attention too so the confluence events some of those things are uber's behavior some of the company's leadership drew attention to uh, some of the malfeasance that was going on there. People started thinking, hey, maybe we need to pay more attention to how this new sort of platform works. And then the uh, the what seems to be the involvement of Russian forces in the U.S. election has raised a lot of attention on how there were so little rules around p- platforms like Facebook, Google, and Twitter. And so now there's a whole lot of discussion about, hey, this has been a little bit of a wild west for a while. That worked out well. We had a flourishing of new technologies. Now's the time we step in and put some rules in the road in place for them. You wrote a piece for Politico saying, Something to the effect of that uh, Facebook managed to do something no one else has been able to do, which is unite liberals and conservatives. Yeah, that's it, it has been remarkable. So I wrote a piece, I think it was in August, about how both on the right and the left side of the political spectrum, there was this new interest in, in um, taking a look at how some of these platforms we're, wor- we're working, um, and we said, you know, something. The Politico headline was, you know, technology getting hit, Silicon Valley getting hit from the right and the left, and that was in August. And at the time, we got some feedback of, what are you talking about? You know, these these platforms are revered in this country, and that was only four months ago. And I think the tone has shifted amazingly quickly into where there's a whole lot of question of, questioning of these platforms now. In your reporting on the platforms, uh, how? Uh 
How do you find, I'm curious about how you find policymakers on Capitol Hill or the executive branch. Do they seem pretty well informed? Are they struggling to figure out how to think about this? How would you characterize the traditional policymakers view of these tech platforms. Yeah, I think it has gotten better. For a long while, the uh, the reputation of Washington was that they were not overly skilled at analyzing some of these more complex technology questions. There's been a lot of attention on hiring staff that's better at the, the better at this sort of thing, paying more attention to sort of the mechanics of some of these platforms in ways that they hadn't in the past. But I think um, there's been around the Russia investigation, in particular, there's been a lot of focus. Uh, it's been all in the news about these 3,000 ads that um, the uh, that one specific uh, quote-unquote troll farm in Russia seems to have placed on Facebook during the course of the 2016 election. And there was a push for Facebook to turn those ads over to Congress, which they eventually did. They also turned it over with payment information showing how those ads had been paid for, many in rules. Um, and they also turned over information about how those ads had been targeted. And I actually, my background before coming to journalism was working on a congressional committee, and you know that uh, they're they're not the most robust staffs. They're not, they don't have the best tools to work with in investigating these things. And you look at this cache of data that they've now that Facebook's now handed over to these you know essentially lawyers on Capitol Hill to make sense of. And part of the conversation that's starting to happen around these investigations is we just don't have the expertise to make sense of 3,000 ads and targeting data and payment data and try to see patterns and how those things work. And so now there's a little bit of a focus on if we're going to make sense of this stuff, we need not only congressional investigators, the special counsel investigators, but the companies to step in and provide some technological expertise and the intelligence community to step in and provide some expertise on their bit of it. And the conversation now that the tech companies want to have is we are part of a, a small part of a much bigger puzzle. We can't make sense of that puzzle. But what I think I might argue is that what we're seeing is congressional investigators can't make sense of that puzzle on their own either. It's going to take a sort of coming together. And I don't think we've seen that sort of thing happen uh, usefully in the past. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. Let me start with, uh, you know, if, if, if my last question was about how prepared or able is the is our policymakers <laughs> to deal with these technical issues where you basically said not that able. Yeah. <laughs> how, uh, how, are, how aggressive are the tech platforms being with lobbying or other efforts to influence how policymakers think about this? Um, I think they're being much more aggressive in a useful way than they have been in the past. So the the orientation has long been just not to engage. Um, and I think as a reporter trying to cover the tech industry, that tends to be fairly frustrating because they don't give a lot of information out. Uh, they don't also, they don't give a lot of information out to lawmakers either. Part of the frustration when you talk about uh, this Russian investigation, when you talk to people working on, on the Hill, they say, uh, I actually interviewed one Senate staffer who was working on, on some of these investigations, and I said, do you have an interest in figuring out how Facebook works at sort of an algorithmic level? Like, not just knowing what ads ran on the platform, but knowing the sort of nuts and bolts um, and how that might have been used by Russian actors to influence the election. And that person said, yes, absolutely, because when Facebook comes in and tells us we need to buy more advertising on their platform or we need to reach our constituents using their platform, which Facebook's push in recent years has been, that this is where people are gathering to discuss democracy. Members of Congress, you need to learn how to reach out to your constituents using this platform. Facebook traditionally, according to the staffer, has said, you need to run more ads. We can't tell you how they work. We're going to change our algorithm to reach your constituents. We can't tell you how, how, how they work. So there's some 
frustration, part of the frustration I think that's driving some of these conversations around platforms right now is members of Congress, other, other people in the political world have felt like we've shifted all of our political discourse to these platforms and we're not being given a sense of how they actually work, and that's immensely frustrating for them. That one of the root issues is transparency. Yes, but it's transparency not just in a sort of matters of big national importance, but transparency in the frustration of these are working politicians very often. Senator Warner from Virginia talks about himself. He runs for elections. He gets frustrated that people run ads against him on Facebook, and he doesn't know who's behind those ads. So I think in some way there's there's something very personal about this frustration with these platforms uh, that, they, yes, just that the people that work in American politics thinks, okay, if these are the new tools by which we're going to sort of uh, govern the country, reach out to voters, uh, run elections, we need more insight into how they, how they work. So, you know, Mark Andreessen has this, I dare say, canonical essay uh, uh, software is eating the world, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. This idea that some of the fundamental rules of how we of how we do things is are changing due to software and data and algorithms and even eventually mm -hmm. AI. And so I wonder um, that that I think is part of why the policymakers don't have the tools or the skills, right? Mm -hmm. they, they, in many cases, don't even appear to know what to ask Facebook for or the platforms mm -hmm. for in these investigations. But I also wonder about, do you think there's any, what kinds of things are you hearing about how we might, what policy solutions might look like? Uh, and, you know, um, I know you wrote something about the FTC's role here potentially, but I'm also just interested in, you know, uh, that whether or not anyone's talking about algorithmic solutions or, you know, if yeah. Facebook, Facebook could, Facebook may not be able to know for certain who is buying ads from outside the United States, but they could algorithmically determine within a fairly, with fairly high consistency and accuracy. Yeah. And I think for them, that's the sort of worst case outcome of some of these Russian investigations is that they have to expose more about how their algorithms work. And the, the threat that they see sort of looming on the horizon is the conversation around algorithmic transparency uh, is just sort of starting to get started in Washington. It's pretty robust. It's a pretty robust conversation in Europe uh, where there's a lot more demands on if you're going to play the role essentially of utilities in our society, we need to be able to peek under the hood. Uh, that's only started to get traction uh, in the United States. And so some of the, there was an interesting thing that happened last week when you talk about policy responses to some of these questions. The, there was a bill introduced called the Honest Ads Act, and it would essentially port the same rules from television, radio, newspapers to the online space to say, okay, if you, you know, you see in the newspaper and you see an advertisement and it says paid for by candidate X, paid for by the Committee to Protect American Freedom, they would have to have those same sort of disclaimers on ads on platforms like Facebook. And Facebook and some of the other companies, which have pretty long resisted having those sorts of disclosures, newly seem open to, to having some of those rules say, okay, you know, maybe there's something we can work with. We said in the past it was impossible. Now maybe it's a little bit more possible. And part of, you know, the semi-cynical take on that is they know they're going to be regulated in some way, and this is regulation that they can live with. Where, right now, where do you think that regulation might express itself, and why not the FCC? Why not the FCC? Yeah. I mean, I think it's more likely in the United States to our response tends to be on a lot of these issues um, to treat them as commercial matters. So if there is a platform, a commercial platform 
that is uh, being abusive to consumers or Americans in some way, we treat that as a, a an issue for the FTC to take care of after the fact, rather than come in with rules ahead of the time and say these how the, these are how these platforms uh, need to work. So that would keep it more of an FTC issue. And part of the argument that you hear from technologists, as you well know, is that we don't want rules, uh, preemptive rules, because that discourages technology, um, in, discourages innovation essentially. If 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 we're starting the game by saying, okay, here's what's allowed and here's what's not allowed. You earlier used the word public utility as, uh, as one way of thinking about the space. Mm -hmm. what, what other kind of historical precedents or other models do you hear being discussed? Uh, I mean, that's the, that's the big one right now um, that's being proposed uh, is treating them, thinking of them in some ways as a public utility, which can mean all sorts of things. It doesn't mean just that it's you know government run. It can be all sorts of different models. And uh, the lead proponent of that has been Steve Bannon, which is one of his, uh, it's one of his, uh, the, his favorite talking points right now is that these platforms are so, uh, play such a role in determining how elections turn out, how, how people communicate with one another, we should treat them as utilities. And uh, it's something he talks about all the time. And he actually just gave a speech a couple days ago in California and railed for several minutes about the lords of democracy, Lord, excuse me, the lords of technology. Um, and how that you know these people have taken on too much power in this society, and we have to sort of cut them down to sides. The uh, so that is the sort of like main theme that you hear right now is that we need to treat them as utilities. The interesting thing you referenced this earlier is like in some ways that's that's a a sort of uh, talking point you'd hear more on the left side of the political spectrum traditionally. Um, and uh, just as a little side note, I actually did an interview yesterday uh, on NPR and. Uh, uh, is a local host. I wasn't familiar with him. Tom Ashberg. Ash yes, he's famous. I've learned since. Uh, he's nationwide. He's yeah. local to Boston, but he's a here. Yeah, people, people, people really like him very much. Um, but his uh, intro to this segment used the phrase "lords of technology," and I thought, okay, here's the the NPR host leading into the segment with a line directly from Steve Bannon's mouth unintentionally. Um, so it, as, as you mentioned before, I think that the sort of coming together from the right and the left around this idea of, you know, regulating them as public utilities in some ways uh, is striking. And that seems to be the, uh, in some ways, it's a reflex, because what's the alternative? What's well, the other way of thinking about You can take an antitrust approach. Yeah. Right? That's, we don't have the most uh, robust antitrust uh, mechanism in this country now. So I think people thinking of betting on that is probably not where uh, where any sort of, in the near future, any, any change is going to occur. In Europe, that's certainly the approach that they've taken, is they regularly, you know, when companies get, they say it's not because they're too big, it's because they're too dominant, um, but they regularly sort of take action against some of these bigger U.S. tech companies. Do, would you say policymakers in D.C. are aware of some of the regulatory, how, how aware are they of regulatory efforts in Europe? And I'm specifically thinking about like the the EU's approach to privacy, GDRP, which goes into effect next year, yeah. which could really disproportionately affect U.S. consumers, arguably yeah. in a good way. I think they're extremely aware. I think there's yeah. in particular because there's a, a deal struck uh, last summer called the Privacy Shield, which uh, harmonizes Europe's approach to privacy um, on digital tra data transfers with. Uh, with sort of, it gives a, an easy way for U.S. companies to comply with Europe's expectations on data. So I think going through that process brought a lot of people's attention to the fact that, hey, Europe uh, at least talks more about privacy, has stronger rules in place around privacy, and that's something 
that we in the United States have to pay attention to, if only because it's affecting how American companies are going to have to run. You mentioned uh, earlier in this conversation the intelligence committees mm -hmm. or in agencies, not committees, the intelligence agencies. Mm -hmm. And the kind of implication in what you said was that uh, the intelligence agencies are among the most technically sophisticated parts of the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. And I wondered, did I, am I going a step too far? And uh, if not... Uh, what is what 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 lessons can we draw? What 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 ways could the government be better prepared? Yeah, I think I mean I don't think it's going a step too far. I'd say compared to what um, are the intelligence is the intelligence community more technologically advanced? Um, I think <coughs> than say the FTC. Oh yes, absolutely. I mean I don't, or, I don't think the FTC yeah. would argue that point. Um, but uh, the. Uh, I think in terms of they have, uh, I mean, I, I think that the safe answer is we don't know in some ways what the intelligence community knows and or is capable of doing. Um, I guess what I'm really driving at is uh, I, in listening to some and reading some of the coverage and some of the, and watching how the how DC is trying to imagine and grapple with some of the challenges the digital platforms uh, bring to the bring to society, it feels to me like almost almost like a crisis of expertise mm -hmm. inside the government Absolutely. for handling these kinds of questions. Absolutely. And I think the, the pattern of the last several decades in some ways has been a rolling back of having that expertise in-house. I mean, there have been small advances made, but I think if you look at Washington as a whole's ability to deal with some of these technological questions, it hasn't uh, advanced very much, certainly not at the pace with which the technology has advanced. And this, um, it's difficult to read sort of real conclusions from it, but if you look at the Obama administration, put a great deal of emphasis on developing in-house technological expertise, and some of that has uh, sort of been rolled back under this administration. One of the, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy had grown to, people in the room might know better than me, it was 120 people. We actually just filed a Freedom of Information Act request uh, to get a sense of their size, because that's how you get information from this White House. Um, and they are down to 44 people, hmm. which, you know, the Trump administration's argument is, well, it was bloated. We didn't need all those people, you know, working on AI inside the White House or, you know, uh, participatory budgeting or some of the other things that office was working on. But I mean, the raw, the raw fact is there are fewer people working on these issues uh, inside the White House, inside various agencies. If you look at the State Department, the person who is uh, in charge of enforcing the State Department's part of that privacy shield deal I talked about is not, uh, there is no one. I mean, they've appointed the, I think it's the Assistant Secretary for Oceans to, to sort of take that on as part of her responsibilities. But there's, <laughs> the, State the State Department is a, uh, it's just it's an echoey place right now. There's not a lot of um, bodies in there. But um, so there's just not the, the people in place uh, that in the past would have at least spent some of their time thinking about some of these issues. So I want to go back to uh, the Russian ads and mm -hmm. more broadly the impact of the platforms on the electoral process. And I want to, you know, as someone who has really been covering this beat for a long time, w were you surprised? Yes. Why? Uh, I think just there was so much going on in this election that it just wasn't something that we were actively thinking about. And I look back now and think even the um, 
the the WikiLeaks situation around the John Podesta emails and some of the DNC emails, in retrospect, it's obvious what was happening, right? Those emails were being stolen. They were being fed to us as journalists to occupy us in the election's final days. And that occupied, you know, that that understanding of what how we were being used in that situation occupied 10% of your brain at the same time you're trying to write a story, you're trying to deal with this, you know, these two candidates that there was a lot to write about them anyway. So I think um, I kind of, I'm not entirely certain about this conclusion, but I think people that say at the time we knew, unless you were really working hands-on inside some of these institutions, is a little bit of a uh, revisionist history of our understanding of Russian involvement during what, the election. What about, uh, how, 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 what is your sense of how, the, how much the platforms knew or understood what was happening? I'd love to know. <laughs> I'd love to know. Um, I don't know that they know these. In some of these companies, they are so big. Um, who knows what one part knew and one part didn't? Um, if you look at Facebook um, in particular, they they've been doing some work after the election about so-called fake ads or disinformation spread on their platform. And if you if you talk to the people that are working them, they've they've sort of enlisted third-party fact checkers to help them on some of these efforts. And those third-party fact checkers are talking to one product manager in one part of the company. You know, it's not like. They're going in to meet with Zark Mark Zuckerberg about you know this issue itself. So uh, the point there is simply that like this is so complex and sprawling. These companies are so complex and sprawling. There's not as if there was one person sitting in a room looking at every system and understanding how the platforms were being the platform was being used uh, by nefarious actors. I have a few more questions and I'm going to open it up to the audience. So uh, get your questions ready. Uh, I want to ask you just about the evolution of online campaigns. Um, you know, I think it's notable to me that in 08 and in 2012, uh, both candidates, but most notably Barack Obama, raised hundreds of millions of dollars on the Internet mm -hmm. and spent almost every dime on television and radio. Mm -hmm. And um, and and in fact, I think if you look at down ballot races, especially federal races, you know, a Senate, House, gubernatorial, but even gubernatorial and other statewide races, I think the the conventional wisdom among political consultants is that if you want to persuade an undecided audience or get a new idea or message out there. You really have to do it through mass media, TV, radio, the press, what have you, and that the internet has has not has, is is most effective in converting in, in converting true believers into donors, mm -hmm. but is not a especially strong medium for persuading people to action. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you think that's broadly true, and if so, what that might say about the current hysteria about these Russian ads. So I'm going to revert to my traditional role of actually being the one asking the questions. <laughs> this is, so you did this work uh, for a few years uh, using the internet to sort of engage people in uh, elections. And we don't have that robust of a record of how uh, how persuasive these ads can be or these te this technology can be. And looking at the the election that we just went through where, you know, Donald Trump did a lot with a tweet. Um, does that change your mind at all in terms? I'm sorry. Uh, you can ask me. No, I don't know. Like That's why I'm asking you is it's kind of I would say the conventional wisdom has been that the Internet doesn't really change anybody's mind ever. Yeah. And uh, and and in that con that, that it's very good for activating people whose minds are made up. Yeah. But it's not been a good medium for changing people's minds. 
And that's why that's why campaigns don't use it that much. Yeah. And I'm wondering, I'm one, you know, and I don't want to. I'm I'm just trying to figure out that it's, uh, uh, it's possible that the Trump campaign or the Russians figured out this holy grail, you could say. Yeah, I think that's among the things we need to study from the 2016 election. I think that's a very big, uh, very big one of them. I think the the pool of information that we have from everywhere from 2004 to 2016, 2016 has to occupy a lot of the investigation to, you know, it's a lot of the evidence around how can you use the Internet to sort of affect how elections go and how people vote and how people think about political issues. So I don't know. I would put I I feel like before we conclude whether or not the internet's good at that stuff, we have to spend a lot more time investigating how it was used uh, in this most recent election. Well, uh, do, what do you think the odds of uh, the Honest Ads Act passing? I don't know. It's certainly gotten a lot of attention. So the um, the reason that people were paying a lot of attention last week was because it was introduced by Senator Amy Klobuchar, Senator Mark Warner, two Democrats, um, and then Senator John McCain uh, joined on as the third co-sponsor. Uh, which, you know, makes sense in a way because he's, you know, traditional campaign finance reform guy. Um, but it certainly drew a lot of attention that it's a bipartisan bill now. There's also a House companion that's bipartisan. There's not, I will admit my ignorance in that, I, I'm not sure why there aren't more co-sponsors yet. There aren't any additional co-sponsors as far as I know. Um, so, which is traditionally a sign of the health of a bill. Um, but I think that there's a real possibility it passes because there's a real hunger for some solution to the... the um, the idea that Russians interfered in the election, and if this, these are, this is, you know, some points they can put on the board that no one's going to complain too, too much about. Um, so I think that ups the chances of it passing. Have the platforms articulated a position on the honest ads? They're act? carefully studying it. Um, they have, as I think I suggested earlier, they are open to it. They have been working on uh, molding some of the parts of it. Which I think in the past, I would have said if we had not just gone through this election, they would have said, this is dead in the water. We're not even going to have the conversation. Uh, they are now um, open to sitting at the table and discussing whether it's something that they can they can live with. Do you think the parties will uh, act? Do you think they will or should act any differently in the next election? <laughs> Can we narrow the scope of how the party should? Well, I guess I'm just I'm just wondering about. Um, obviously, uh, it look it looks like both parties had their security compromised in some substantial ways. Yeah. And I guess really what I'm asking is, do you have any sense that that's being taken seriously? Yeah. Um, is there any talk about? You know, I know the Secret Service provides physical protection to the nominees. Yeah. Should they provide some kind of cyber protection? Yeah. So this is. Coming at that question from the side, I'm a big proponent of the idea that we need to rename cybersecurity because it's something that people sort of think of. It's just like a like a medical checkup. It's something somebody else takes care of. Cyber. We get it. You know, we get it done with. And even at Politico, God bless us, but we have a technology team and we have a cybersecurity team, and that made sense for a lot of years. But when we're talking about elections now, at that point, that's something I have to. I'm on the technology team. I have to think about cybersecurity. And I think that just that the ship has sailed on the idea that cybersecurity just encompasses like um, I'm trying to think of the right way. It's like a prophylactic. Somebody you just get your cybersecurity taken care of and then you don't have to worry about it when it's something that is a campaign has to think of as their core part of the core of what they do. A party has to think of as core of what they they do. Secretaries of state that run our election system have to think of it as probably their first job um, in a lot of ways. So I think just that 
that sort of national, I mean, I, I hate to call for a national conversation, but I think we need a national conversation about how cybersecurity is maybe the thing that we have to think most about um, right now. And I think people are starting to think about with the Equifax uh, situation. I think that was eye-opening. Um, but I, I just think we have to find new ways of talking about it that isn't, in some ways, it bores me to talk about cybersecurity, but I care very much about the future of democracy. So I think we need to sort of reframe that What do you think is the most underreported story in technology and politics? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think, like, as somebody who's, as you mentioned, has covered this for a long time, there's never been more attention um, on this stuff. I think that the... Um, this isn't really a sort of discrete story, but the idea of how we engage with each other as Americans and how our communities are developing and the impact on democracy, essentially, and how that's being shaped in technology and everything from jobs to, you know, sort of communities that used to meet in person now, you know, meet online and um, what's that platform, the neighbor? Uh, Next door, yeah. Meet online and next door to discuss things happening in their community. That uh, that's a more of a social social science question of like how fundamentally is technology changing um, what the United States of America even means. I think is something you know I can't pitch that story. <laughs> you don't get to study the the impact of technology on the United States, but um, but I think we need to sort of like break off some parts of that of understanding. Um, and I think there are people that are doing interesting work on that. I recently profiled Steve Case who. Uh, if people remember him, they remember he was the founder of a the co-founder of AOL, who made a lot of money in the name AOL uh, that didn't go so well. Um, but his pitch now is going around the country talking about startup culture that really worked well in Silicon Valley and New York City, and how what parts of that can be sort of brought to Middle America, you know, parts of the South, and sort of revive the economic landscape in those places. And it's essentially saying, hey, technology, for all its faults, has done a lot of good to this country. Let's extract the good parts, change them a bit, and then replicate them in other parts of the country. I think those conversations are really interesting. And uh, even, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is doing his national tour. People give him a hard time about it. You know, the photo ops aren't always the best for him. But um, the uh, I think the idea that understanding that Facebook is changing the country is something he's trying to investigate and that we all should be paying uh, pretty close attention to. All right. I could keep going. I got about another 20 questions for you, but I feel obligated to stop and ask if the audience has any questions. <laughs> Nick. Hey, Nancy. Hey, Nick. Um, so uh, I'm a Shorenstein faculty affiliate, uh, former fellow, and former OSTP. I uh, was one of the deputy USCTOs, and it's great to now put you on the hot seat. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Around. Uh, I'm curious about your perspective on the government modernization agenda, mm -hmm. something that collectively we had a lot of success yeah. and failures and a lot of learnings over, over the Obama administration. And yeah. Arguably, healthcare.gov was a wake-up moment for the presidency and really catalyzed yeah. a lot of good people coming into government. Yeah. Uh, I have a perspective, but I'm curious about what your perspective is. I actually would love to hear your perspective on this, but I, I will take a... Take a swing at it. So I think in some ways it's going well. I think there's been more emphasis on the idea that how the government buys and builds $82 billion worth of technology every year traditionally hasn't gone all that well. Healthcare.gov was sort of like the prime case of uh, we can spend a lot of money and still not build something that actually works. 
Um, the I think there's been a lot of attention paid in this administration, in part because it's actually Jared Kushner's passion project, as I understand it. Um, he's running something called the White House Office of American Innovation. One of their, they probably focus on three things. One of them is IT modernization, um, which I think in the Obama White House, there was certainly a great deal of attention paid to it. But it, you know, as I, I interviewed, I'm blanking on who it was, but it was some technology company executive who had worked with Jared Kushner on this topic. And they said, it, you know, it does help if the president's son says this is, you know, son-in-law, excuse me, is something that he wants to pay attention to. Um, and then there's some legislation that's making its way. It's actually now law, I believe, which is the... Um, it's a bill that sort of creates new funding mechanisms for um, buying technology that seems actually in some ways like a remarkably substantive fix to the situation. Um, so I think there are there there are positive signs, but yeah, maybe afterwards I can yeah, pick your brain my, for. My two points or my yeah. two cents would be that you need to have people to execute. Yeah. And so we're still while there's a lot of bipartisan continuation of a lot of things that you need to have folks actually yeah. in the agencies, including CIOs. Well, and also, as you mentioned, you were U.S. deputy U.S. CTO. There is currently one deputy CTO and no CTO um, of the United States and no, as I understand it, no um, plan to name one. They're going to have a deputy, which is a non-traditional understanding of the role of a deputy, um, but I not think, have a U.S. CTO. Uh, I think we need to give people some more context for that, both people in the room and our loyal listeners. Yes. Um, which is that... Uh, or let me, let me tr I'm going to try and characterize this, but I know a very little about this compared to you, so I want, which is that uh, when Obama was elected president, uh, technology, especially digital technology and software, was just, uh, it was almost a decade ago, right? And it was just beginning to permeate our lives. And um, Obama led a fairly aggressive overhaul of the federal government. Uh, uh, the way the federal government thinks about and uses technology to provide services to constituents, to to the American citizens, and that following the initial failure of healthcare.gov, that effort intensified dramatically. Mm -hmm. But even prior to that, even prior to the failure of healthcare.gov, you know there was a fairly radical overhaul of whitehouse.gov. There was a lot of interesting and compelling work that felt like it was modernizing, modernizing the government, making the federal government work in a digital age, right? And what I'm hearing you say, and what I heard a little bit from Nick there, is that under the current administration, even though there may be some high-minded desire to do that, they're not staffing as if that's a serious priority. Well, I mean, I think the, the argument they would make is that they have a different model. They don't need the folks inside the White House because they're hiring uh, competent outsiders to do some of the work that they hope to see done. So one of the big pushes they're making is around the VA, um, the systems by which veterans apply for health benefits and sort of get those health benefits has always been problematic. Um, and so they recently said, we're scrapping essentially the contract around some of the VA components around the technology, and we're going to start. I mean, we can talk about contracting; it's fairly boring. But the they uh, they're going to try a different approach, right? Sort of get rid of the old vendor, get a new vendor, and sort of fix it that way. So their argument would be: we really, really want to fix these same challenges. We're just approaching it differently. Approaching it differently by outsourcing it to outside firms versus doing it inside the federal government. Uh, in part, yeah. All right. Other questions from the audience? Yeah, introduce yourself. 
My name is Kirsten Wolf and I graduated uh, in May from, from HKS here and I'm now a fellow at the Law School for Artificial Intelligence and its Governance. And one of the things we're very concerned about is of course algorithmic transparency, mm -hmm. you mentioned it, but also more in the direction of these systems that already permeate our lives, for instance in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And the big questions are sometimes discussed in media and also in politics, but those smaller questions of the systems that are already deployed yeah. get a lot less attention. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, are, is there any awareness on the side of policymakers for these systems? Yeah. Um, what can we do to foster the discussion? So this, these would be systems inside, like, the criminal justice system you mentioned in terms of, like, evaluating people's uh, parole, parole and that sort of, yeah. Yeah. So I would argue that that's something I would love to write more about. It's really hard because it's hard to see inside these systems unless there's someone inside the system who wants to tell you more about how it works. Um, we can look at outcomes, but there's not a ton of data, I think, in some ways that's been compiled. This isn't my area of expertise by any means, but I think there's we're still in the early days of some of those things, um, and so we don't have sort of a robust body of evidence to work with if we're trying to write about them. But um, yeah, I think yes, I, it's it's a fruitful area to focus on. I think in terms of you know daily journalism or even magazine journalism, it's a tough one to to bite off. And on the policymaker side, we would say that's even less. There's even less awareness about these. Um... Yes. <coughs> yes. Yeah. I think just because people aren't interacting with those systems in the same way they're interacting with other ones, as we discuss. Yep. George Mulvey, Tenet Solid Square. It seems recently in the news that a very famous type of quarter from Silicon Valley has become the Harvey Weinstein of. Uh, technical journalism. So you have that one level. There are at least two books out now about kind of algor toxic algorithm, right, where algorithms are actually discriminating against some people. You can go on uh, YouTube and see uh, a demonstration of this in terms of hardware where a person with light colors yeah. you know, activates a hand drying machine, a person with black colored skin doesn't. Those kinds of issues of um, lack of diversity, um, built-in discrimination, yeah. not only with the people right, of the industry and the people covering the industry, but also within the building of these algorithms. Yeah. You know, what is happening with those, which I think are two very related topics? This is, um, so Sheryl Sandberg, who's the COO of Facebook, was in Washington, Washington, I think the week before last. And the bulk of her meetings were with the Congressional Black Caucus, the Hispanic Caucus um, in Congress, and local or DC-based civil society groups that work on race, because they realize that that's sort of the next shoe to drop in some ways, that they have not done super well. And I'm just limiting to Facebook as an example, but they haven't done super well on race. And uh, they know it internally. I think they get it a lot from their employees, that their employees are disappointed on, on how they performed on that um, to this point. So, and I think, uh, Sheryl Sandberg has sort of taken that on as for, for Facebook as something that she thinks is a priority. And the argument that is being made to, to Facebook from, say, the Congressional Black Caucus is you don't know what your 
not designing for because you don't have more diverse people working for you, right? You know, you're not even asking the same questions that a more diverse workforce would be asking about how do we use this platform. There was some um, there's some evidence now that some of the Russian ads were um, around some of the Black Lives Matter conversation were plant were put there by Russian actors, and that if you had more diverse people just working in your advertising department, would they have looked at that and said, "Hey, that's problematic. I know what that ad is trying to do." The um, I've actually been at the risk of editorializing, I, the Congressional Black Caucus has made, put a lot of attention on this in the recent weeks and months, and their ask is for a black board member, African-American board member, which I think is a, it seems like that's, I guess, a more tangible outcome to say, okay, we know when we've succeeded in, in getting that, but like the idea of actually changing how these companies think about those diversity questions, I think is, you know, I don't know. Everyone's worried and thinking about it, but I don't know. I don't know where it goes from here. Can I follow up? Um, you're talking about the personal level, right? But there is a possibility that this stuff is built in, this discrimination is built into the algorithm. But the argument would be is because the people are not, the people building that thing. I mean, at some point, people are building that thing. The people building that thing aren't thinking about how it could be used in discriminatory ways. Yeah, but. How deep are they going into the nuts and bolts of the algorithms to look at them, whatever their backgrounds are? Yeah. Because I think those are two different things. Understanding how the algorithms work from the... It, how the algorithms may discriminate. Yeah. So that is that conversation about algorithmic transparency that the companies very much do not want to have, um, but that is just starting to heat up. I think there were even a couple senators maybe yesterday that sent a letter saying, we want you to come in talk to us more about how your algorithms work. And you imagine people at the companies getting that letter and saying, can't we go back and talking talking about Russian advertising? Because this is not a conversation we want to have. In the back, yep. Thank you. Um, Ines from Microsoft, MIT. Um, now, my question refers to your answer to the question of what the platforms actually know. And um, you mentioned that there are third-party fact checkers, but they don't necessarily have access to the relevant decision makers within the company. Mm -hmm. now, while that might very well be the case, I'm not in place, so I, I don't know, but I can assume it. Um, so leaving this aside, I, I wonder if the issue is not a bigger one, because ultimately, who has access is a reflection of a company's priority. Mm -hmm. I would argue that leads to the bigger question of, um, are companies or platforms' interests actually aligned with those of our decision makers, political decision makers, yeah. who favor national interests, while companies might actually look at yeah, I feel like the answer is in the question there a little bit. <laughs> they're, they're not, they're not always like. I think it depends. I think Facebook has an interest. They talk a lot about, you know, if people don't trust Facebook, then there's, you know, Facebook doesn't have anything. There is no Facebook, right? They they make that claim. I think so. They have maybe a more compelling interest to to crack down on some of that disinformation that we've seen. I think when you look at something like Twitter, not to pick on Twitter, but the if the there was a, the argument is that bots were. Um, which are just sort of automated accounts that really aren't rooted in any one person like wanting this account to do anything particular. It's just automated to sort of amplify things that bots were used during the election uh, to push different, you know, uh, theories or you know, uh, attacks on particular candidates. That Twitter has, don't quote me on this, but Twitter has said something like, eight, "We believe eight percent of the accounts on our platform are bots," and uh, independent researchers say it's fifteen. There's some debate about like where the number falls in there, and. Uh, 
but Twitter is a struggling company in a lot of ways. And if they suddenly did away with 15% of the accounts on their already struggling platform, I think they didn't add a single user in the United States last quarter, right? So like, then to go and say, okay, not only did we add anybody, we were getting rid of 15% of our user base is uh, probably problematic for them and their shareholders. Um, so uh, I think it depends on the issue, but I think in a lot of t cases, yeah, that is the issue, is that there's only so much some of the platforms can do to crack down on things before they affect their underlying businesses. What do you, would, would you say that the impact and influence of Twitter on journalism reporting the press is net positive? I don't know. I think it depends on the reporter. I think um, I think it exposes reporters in some cases to storylines that they might not know people are thinking about, right? So like you can imagine if reporters are sitting, you know, you spend half your day in Capitol Hill and half your day in your newsroom, there's a you know, there's a certain pool of stories that are going to come into your brain if you're, you know, Keeping tabs on what people are talking about on Twitter, you're potentially exposed to a wider range of conversation. Um, I think it's also enormously draining as a reporter. I mean, you can imagine if you're trying to like contemplate a story or what did the person mean when they said to me this to me in an interview. At the same time, you know, your tweet deck's running uh, next to you. It can be enormously distracting. Um, so I don't know. I think it's. I think in some ways reporters have to get better at using it, um, and I think we've seen some high-profile examples where reporters recently, thinking of two people at the New York Times, or one in particular, just said, "I'm not going to use it anymore. I'm not going to," you know, which you think that's a decision you can make when you've gotten to the New York Times, but <laughs> for other reporters, like part of our job is to we write a thing, we get it out there, we get people responding to it, we respond to their responses, um, so. I think it's a tool, if we used it uh, very well, might be a net positive. I don't know that we're at that point yet. What do you think Twitter could go away in the next 24 months? Yeah, I actually do. And what would, uh, what would that do to reporting? <laughs> uh, do you think that would reduce the stress in your life? <laughs> oh, absolutely. It would absolutely reduce the stress. Um, I'm going to be glib and say, how about we try and see? <laughs> a little experiment for, uh, yeah. Why, why do you think it might, what's the argument for it despairing? Uh, I don't think they have, uh, I'm not a business reporter. They don't have much of a business. Um, yeah. And they don't have a tremendous amount of uh, focus on, I think it's going to take a lot of creativity to find a business model um, for them that works well, and I don't know that they have exhibited that they are uh, moving down that path yet. Wow. Well, um, well, yeah. I'm uh, the Trump Team Center, and I'm actually studying platforms and what are the digital frameworks for them. Can you talk a little bit about the role of civil society, and are you? Are there some good examples that you see are applying pressure on on these platforms to yeah to step up to their societal responsibility? Yeah, the one um, I'm a big fan of civil society, so I think I think uh, seeing those groups it's a separate question. Seeing those groups learn better how to use some of these tools themselves, like campaigns have figured out how to use some of these technologies. Uh, the uh, some in government have figured out how to use some of these technologies. Civil society actually figuring out how to like better use technologies to advance their missions. It's something New Americas, which is a group down in D.C., is placing some emphasis on. It's some people that actually left the Obama White House 
are trying to figure out, okay, the stuff that we used inside the White House to carry out the mission of government, can we help civil society groups use those technologies to carry out their mission? So I think that's interesting. Um, the model, I think, that seems to have worked uh, fairly well is Color of Change, which is a group that is um, used, they use the sort of business pressure to say, there are a lot of people of color that use your product. If you don't sort of, here's what we want. If you don't make these changes, we're going to raise that issue with the people boycott. that we talk we're to. Gonna we're going to boycott. And they've done that around a number of, they did that around the um, ALEC, which is the uh, American Legislative Exchange, Exchange Council. Um, to say, you know, Kraft, I think, was one example they used of Kraft is working with ALEC, which is a, um, they write conservative legislation, push it through state houses. Um, and so, and Kraft had been a sponsor, I think, of ALEC, and Color of Change said, you know, here are the products that are very popular in the people, in the communities of the people that we talk to. If you don't decide you want to leave ALEC this quarter, we're going to raise, we're going to point out that you're supporting legislation. Um, I think it was stand your ground legislation was the, the core sort of in the Trayvon Martin shooting situation. Um, so that's a long-winded way of saying that they're starting to apply some of that pressure to some of the platform companies. And that's in some ways it's cynical, I think, but it's it's a business argument, right? It's You don't want us pointing out to people that you're behaving badly because there are a lot of people that are going to listen to what we have to say about whether or not to use your product. Um, but. I think there's more value, well, those are values driven, but like the more conversation around like what we're trying to accomplish as an American society I think would be useful, but I don't think that's, I think you have a lot of research to do. <laughs> um, but yeah. Other questions? Yeah, David? I'm sure. Hi, Dave Beard, I'm the same fellow here. Um, do you see, um, do you foresee uh, sort of proactive measures by, uh, by tech companies that, um, deal with before legislation uh, some issues. I'm thinking sort of uh, in the hour before you spoke, I was listening to Adam Masseri at uh, Facebook dealing with uh, 15 variations are you going to change news feed yeah. uh, into two feeds like in seven countries around the world yeah. uh, to be tested. He said, well, no, not right now, not, not like that. Not a, work, a lot more work needed. Yeah. But the idea of if news feed is the one place where the election, where some people may have thought that the election was decided, let's let's eradicate that root of mixing up family news and uh, professional news yeah. ahead of time, or or so free uh, publishers for more money, yeah. moving over to that privileged family side. Yeah. So in terms of steps that they themselves would take without being sort of forced to. So this is so um, Mark Zuckerberg shortly after the election said the idea that fake news uh, had any impact, quote unquote fake news had any impact on the election was a crazy idea. Then a couple weeks ago, he gave a speech about how critical an issue this is and how much he thinks it's something he needs to pay more attention to. And he announced some steps that Facebook was going to take to deal with um, misleading advertisements in particular. One of them is aggregating every advertisement. If an advertiser runs it on Facebook, they have to post it in one place so people can see if you're running 17 different versions of a targeted ad, somebody can go in and see all 17 versions. So, um, yeah, I think they're make they're taking steps to sort of address the problem before other people address it for them. I guess it's, I think the job of of me of all of us is to say, okay, is that is that a real thing? Is it you know is it like some of their steps around fake news? We're going to flag fake news. I don't. I've actually never seen one in the wild where Facebook has flagged a fake news story. Um, which is what they say that they're they're currently doing right now. So uh, so I think they 
they've gotten pretty good at talking about the steps they're going to take. And I think now we just need to pay more attention of whether it actually does anything in the end. Okay. You know, Facebook's flagging uh, fake news stories through its, its alliance with fact checkers. It's happening all the time. And and but actually displayed on Facebook. Well, you've got the you've got the queue up when you search it that it, that it's been challenged. When you search for the story yeah. itself. Yeah, or the category of the story itself. But if it's displayed on the Facebook feed. If someone buys a promote, if someone buys a promotion of a story, does the, f the does the fact check flag show up? I think so. Okay. I'll go back and check it. But I think you see it? Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's supposed to. I've seen one. Well, that's, yeah. And I mean, part of that is the, you know, we were actually talking about this in the newsroom the other day of how we had not seen the, the flagging of the fake news. And then it's, okay, is that because of the news feed that we're seeing, right? That's our friends think, you know, are not posting. Well, you, you, um, may have, you may have a much more healthy news, healthy news. Yeah. So that, but I mean, I would argue then like that's part of the conversation of what sort of news feeds each of us are seeing is something that like some of that. We don't, how am I not articulating this well, but just more conversation around like how is my newsfeed being crafted and why am I seeing the things that I'm seeing are, yes, part of that algorithmic transparency. And that's a conversation actually that companies I think are more willing to have about the end product of why your newsfeed looks the way that it does, which they resisted for a long time of saying, why am I seeing this thing? They've taken steps to sort of uh, being more willing to talk about that. But yeah, I mean, I'd love to, if you all are working on this too, if there's evidence about the um, the fake news flagging and just sort of like statistics and that sort of thing, I would love to see it because we've been we're not sure how to cover that yet. All right, my last question: What do you read to stay abreast of what's happening? Like, where are you hunting for stories? How do you get a sense of what's happening in the tech industry and yeah. its attitudes about policy? I, this is going to sound pretentious, but history actually, I think it's more interesting looking at the the. You know, we've been through elections before. We've been through elections where people have tried to meddle. Um, the sort of uh, the weak points in our democracy that people have tried to exploit in the past. I think that particularly looking at the Russian question, Russia has tried a lot of these things in other places. So trying, you know, reading, I'm reading, I'm diving deep into Putin right now to understand his psychology because I think, you know, they've tried some of the same stuff in other places. Um, and that's a way as a reporter of getting stories is to know, okay, in Ukraine, they tried X. They're probably going to try that here. Let me start looking out for that sort of thing. Um, that's sort of a highfalutin answer. But I mean, just beyond that, some of, uh, you know, I read the same thing. Wired, you know, New York Times, all the same, same things. Um, you probably read. Nancy. What do you expect for the? Um, what are your expectations for the November first hearing when all of the tech giants will go to Capitol Hill? Yeah. So this is so. No, on November first, Twitter, Google, and Facebook are coming in to talk about the the um, the election and, and possible Russian involvement. They're all sending their general counsels, which I thought was an interesting choice, rather than CEOs or someone else. Um, and I think they're, uh, we don't know yet. We don't know what the, the sort of focus is going to be because it's a broad, it's a broad panel of three companies that actually work pretty differently. Mm -hmm. A lot of members of Congress that have a real interest in asking specific questions. Um, and part of what we've actually been reporting on is whether there has been this focus on Facebook advertisements, um, sort of to the exclusion of discussing what happened on Twitter, what happened on Google hasn't even really been discussed very much at all to Facebook's great annoyance. <laughs> um, but uh, so the question, I think the companies would like to keep the focus on like a small set of, we had some problematic ads, let's address it. 
they, as I mentioned, this algorithmic transparency, they don't want to have that conversation. So we'll see who, who sort of, you know, you can sort of win or lose a hearing. We'll see who win or loses it um, based on like how broad the scope, the scope is. Uh, can I ask a follow-up question, Nico? And this goes to the Clinton campaign. Um, and the decision not to utilize the assistance that Facebook would provide them, they provided some assistance to the Trump campaign. Yeah. Do you have any idea why the Clinton, what kind of uh, assistance they provided to the Trump campaign and why the Clinton campaign may have not taken that? Yeah, I have a story coming out Thursday on this very topic. Okay. I encourage you to read. Um, it's actually based on a, a journal article um, in the journal Public uh, Political Communication that's coming out the same day about the assistance that the company, so it's Facebook, Google, and Twitter provided to um, campaigns and candidates in 2016. And the companies argued they offered it to everyone. In the primaries, they worked with everyone. Um, and the, as you mentioned, the Clinton campaign, they didn't not talk to the companies, but they did. They treated them as vendors, right? If they wanted to buy an advertisement, they called their advertising rep and said, please place this advertisement. Where with the Trump campaign, because they had so little digital staff, relied on them as staffers. Um, and they, they actually set up office space in San Antonio, which is where the Trump campaign's um, Chief Digital Strategist was based, and they rented some cheap uh, strip mall office space, and Twitter, Google, and Facebook sent employees down to sort of um, help carry out. And so it's, you know, the companies say they are major advertisers. You know, advertising reps traditionally have held the hand of major advertisers. It's the same sort of thing. Um, but it is sort of an interesting, the person that, one of the co-authors of this journal article said, this is a subsidy. The companies are giving subsidies to campaigns, and you know, is it more problematic or less problematic that the Clinton campaign didn't take them up on it? Right, but like the end of contribution is it? Yeah, it's on the FEC report. And the end effect was that there was a gap because the Trump campaign didn't staff up on the digital side during the primaries, and the the companies helped close that gap with the Clinton campaign. So, and they, you know, they're providing customer service. They say. Um, so I feel like I avoided your question, but was there, so yeah, it's an interesting dynamic and it's just, you know, and when you talk to the companies, they say, well, everyone knows we do this. It's a long running practice. It's not a new practice in 2016. Well, here's the thing though. They have talked about the, the advertising support and sort of best practices, um, uses of their tools, right? The, what this paper argues is that it's far more, uh, it's far broader and deeper than that. So it's in some cases, it's strategic advice. It's helping them understand, OK, these, you know, a best practice is photos of, you know, puppies tend to do well on Instagram, right? But they had reps saying, looking at, you know, sort of giving, I mean, it's a difference of, it's of, of, of uh, it's not a completely new practice, but the degree of, of help that they provided in like understanding this is how Instagram works right well, now. And I think Brad Parscale from the Trump campaign said on that 60 Minutes interview that he interviewed the Facebook employees to assess their commitment to That's Donald not true. Trump. That's not true. Actually. No? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, this Facebook says it's not true. Um, they Facebook so they says it's not true. They have yeah. partisan. So this is where they they, they think where the. The, the confusion probably lies is that these teams of, of ad reps and teams of best practice, election best practice reps for the companies are partisan. So they do, they were Republicans. Um, but the fact that he, you know, so he screened for Republicans, yes. Did he screen from Trump supporters? No. 
At the same time, if you're a employee at one of these companies and you're our designated Republican or one of our 10 designated Republicans and you don't want to go work for the Trump campaign, you know, if the, whether or not the company's going to send you is probably like an internal conversation. So there might, you know, but no, he didn't get to the companies would resist strongly the idea that he got to handpick who we had. Nancy, I'm quite certain I could talk to you for another three hours. <laughs> um, but I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join thank us you. today. Thank you all for coming. Thanks for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.